it's, uh, it's great to be with you. I'm uh, speaking to you from a conference in Illinois at the moment. I just, I just got to my motel room about two minutes ago. So uh, it's not common for me to do two conferences at once, but it's great to see you, see you all. Um, if you turn with me, please, to Joshua 24, Joshua 24, verses uh, 14 and 15. Joshua is speaking here, his farewell address uh, to the people of Israel when he's 100 years old. And he says this in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve, or you could translate it, we will worship the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we ask thy benediction upon this address on family worship, and we pray that we would understand adequately the theological foundations of family, and then our, the call that is incumbent upon us to exercise family worship as our forefathers did, but is so often forgotten in our day. Uh, please use this address to move our hearts and our minds into action, and that those who need to make radical changes in their family worship would be willing to do so. Having been taught this evening or this morning, rather, by thy word of the importance, the command to worship thee with their family. So help us in speaking and grant thy benediction upon this address and this conference. And be with every uh, Aussie friend who's gathered here. We thank you, Lord, for all the times we've been in Australia and enjoyed the fellowship of the saints there. And we do pray for Australia that thou wouldst fill this country with the knowledge of the Lord, even from sea to sea. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that family worship has fallen on very, very hard times. I've had the privilege of speaking on family worship in dozens of countries around the world. And uh, I've never come away from a family worship address without some people walking up to me and saying, I didn't even know I was supposed to be doing such a thing. Uh, it's, uh, it's very sad when you think about how our forefathers conscientiously did family worship in the Reformation, the Puritan age, and we've, uh, we've let go of this primary means of grace. It's also interesting that we have hundreds of books on the market on how to grow a church, but we don't seem to have any chapters in the, any of those books on family worship. But usually, at least in the three churches I've served in my life, all of whom have had about 700 members each. The families that did daily family worship were the backbone of the church, and the children would grow up and join the church. And where there's daily, intentional, serious family worship, God blesses the church, grows the church, and often works mightily in the covenant seed of the children. So I want to begin by asking you, how critical is family worship to you? Could you go without it for a week or a month? Is it something that is the most important part of your day? Are you, you dads, as a father, is it the most important thing you do in life? Or is it something you can say, well, you know, we kind of do it, but 
we do it for a couple of minutes and then we just let it go. And uh, it's a failure and we're inconsistent. We don't do it every day. Sometimes we skip a couple of days in a row. Well, this talk is for you tonight. I want to look at five things with you tonight. I want to look with you, first of all, at the theological foundations of family worship. And then I want to look with you at um, uh, dear. Okay. My, uh, my computer just flashed in front of me, but I think I'm okay. Um, secondly, I want to look with you at the duty of family worship. Then thirdly, how do you do it? It's implementation. Fourthly, it's objections. And fifthly, it's motivation. So five things. So let's look then first at the theological foundation. So the theological foundations of family worship are rooted in the very being of God. The Apostle John tells us that God's love is inseparable from his triune life. God's love is outgoing, it's overflowing. It shares its blessedness from one person of the Trinity to the next person of the Trinity. God has never been a solitary individual lacking something in himself. The fullness of light and love is eternally shared among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's important to understand because the majestic God, the triune God, doesn't model himself after our families. Rather, he models the earthly concept of family after himself. So the family life is a faint reflection of the life of the Holy Trinity. That's why Paul speaks of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the family in heaven and earth is named, Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. So the love, the love among the persons of the Trinity is so great from eternity that the Father determined to create a world of people who, though finite, would have personalities that reflected the Son. And being conformed to the Son, God's people could then share in the blessed holiness and joy of the Trinity's family life. So God created Adam in his own image, and Eve from Adam. And from them came the entire human family, so that mankind might have covenantal fellowship with God. And so it's a two-person family. Our first parents reverently worshiped God as he walked with them in the Garden of Eden. But of course, you know, Adam disobeyed God. He turned the joy of worship and fellowship with God into fear and dread and guilt and alienation. So Adam severed the relationship between the family of God and the family of mankind. But God's purpose could not be thwarted. And while they yet were in paradise, God brought forth a new covenant, the covenant of grace, and told Adam and Eve about his son, who as the seed of the woman would break the power of Satan over them and secure them the blessings of the covenant of grace. And that seed, we're told later in the Old Testament, would be slain, would be crucified, so that poor sinners like us could be restored, restored to our true purpose, to glorify God and worship him and have fellowship with him as individuals and in our family. So God deals with the human race through covenant and headship, or we might call it representation. In daily life, parents represent children, a father represents his wife and children, church office bearers represent church members, legislators represent citizens, employers represent employees. In spiritual life, therefore, spiritual life, every single person 
is represented by either the first atom, if we're still unsaved, or by the last atom, the second atom, Jesus Christ, if we are saved. And so Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, paints it this way. He said, picture two huge giants, and they have big belts on around their waist, belts that have millions and millions of holes in them. He said, every single person is connected to one of those two giants. And when we're born again, the Holy Spirit unhooks us from the belt of the first atom and hooks us to the belt of the second atom. So that now we're represented by Jesus. Now we're in covenant with Jesus rather than in covenant with the first Adam. So no one, no one stands merely as an individual before God. We are all represented. God deals with us in a family relationship, in a covenant relationship, in a representation relationship. And that's why in the Pentateuch already, there's so much talk about family. The book of Numbers, for example, uses the word family, I think, more than 100 times. The father is to lead the family in Passover worship and to instruct his children about what it means. Now, that father's leadership role in worship continued throughout the monarchy in Israel and throughout the Old Testament prophets. For example, Zechariah predicted that as the Holy Spirit was poured out in a future age, the Father, or the, rather the people, would experience him as the Spirit of grace and supplication, moving them, he says, family by family, to heartfelt repentance before God. Now, the relationship between worship and family and family life continued in New Testament time. Peter declares to the Jews in his Pentecost sermon that the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that the faith of a parent establishes the covenant status of holiness and privilege and responsibility for his or her children. So the New Testament church, which included children with their parents as members of the body, and the experience of individual believers such as Timothy, affirm the importance of faith and worship within families. Now, all of this leads the theologian Douglas Kelly to say this, family religion, which depends not a little on the household head daily leading the family before God in worship, is one of the most powerful structures that the covenant-keeping God has given for the expansion of redemption through the generations so that countless multitudes may be brought into communion with and worship of the living God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, family worship is grounded in God's family covenant and God's own family heart, going all the way back to the Trinity itself. Three persons in one Trinity. Now, how do we connect that then to the duty, to the duty of family worship? That's my, that's my second thought. Well, Joshua in Joshua 24 is 100 years old, I said, and he assumes his family will continue family worship. He says, as for me and my family, we will serve, we will worship the Lord. And that family worship of Joshua was so pervasive that we read in Joshua 24, verse 31, and Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, that is the next generation, which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. So this is a huge encouragement to God-fearing parents to know that the worship of God that they set up in their families may last one or more generations after them. So Joshua gives us just a wonderful example here. 
Now, what are we to do? What are we to do in family worship? We could go to many texts. We could go to Deuteronomy 6, where it talks about talking to your children diligently. We could go to other places in the New Testament. But basically, we can boil it down to four things. Number one, there must be a daily reading of the Word of God. A daily reading of the Word of God in our families. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, that's how Timothy grew up knowing the scriptures. Apparently, there was his father wasn't there, so his mother took over that role and his grandmother and read the scriptures to him day by day. Number two, daily instruction in the word of God. As Moses writes in Deuteronomy 6, we're to talk to our children every day about the things of God. When we sit in our house, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we rise up. That's just a Hebrew way of saying this is that family worship is a daily activity, a daily activity. A daily activity in which we have questions and answers with our children and discussion. And we interact every day about the truths of the Bible. So if you have 365 days a year and your child is in your home 20 years, that gives you 7,300 opportunities. If you do it once a day, if you do like the Puritans, family worship twice a day, it gives you 14,600 opportunities to talk to your children about the Word of God. Now, Moses is not suggesting here a little casual talk. He's saying we should talk with our children diligently, earnestly, from heart to heart, day by day. So first is the daily reading of the Word of God. Second is the daily instruction from His Word. And then thirdly is the daily prayer to the throne of God. We read in Jeremiah that God's wrath, God's wrath is poured out on families that don't call upon His name. We read in 1 Timothy 4 that everything is sanctified by the Word of God and by prayer, also in our families. We read in Deuteronomy 8 that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God to the nourishment of our souls. It's obvious we need to come before God's throne every day as a family. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, a family without prayer is like a home without a roof exposed to all the storms of heaven. And the fourth thing we need to do, according to the Bible, is to have daily singing of the praise of God. Psalm 118 verse 15 says, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. So what that means, of course, is this is not synagogue worship, but this is worship in the home. The Israelites were worshiping God in the home, and they were singing day by day in their homes, as Philip Henry, the Puritan father of the famous commentary Matthew Henry said, this is a mandate to sing the Psalms or classic hymns in our home day by day. And so as a father, you are clothed with holy authority. You owe it to your children to bring them prophetic teaching through daily family worship, instructing them, priestly intercession, praying for them, and royal guidance, showing them the way based on Scripture that they must go. You are called to be a prophet, a priest, and a king in your own home. That's my second point. Now you're going to ask the question, but how do you implement it? This is the most important point. How do you do family worship in these four areas? Well, first of all, I'd like to say to you, you need to prepare for family worship. You should have a place in your home where you regularly go for family worship. You should have a little pile of books by each chair of every child that's old enough to read their own Bible, their own Psalter or hymn book, and perhaps a daily devotional you're reading or whatever else you're, you're going through. And so when you have that set time each day, say, for example, it's after supper, the, the evening meal, you move from the dinner table to that place. 
and everything's in order. That's number one. Number two, aim for brevity in family worship. Don't do 40 minutes one day and zero the next day. It's like eating daily food. You need to eat daily spiritual food. So 10, 15 minutes a day, if the children are a bit older, five to 10 minutes perhaps is long enough if the children are very young. But every day, aim for brevity, aim for brevity. And don't indulge, number three, don't indulge in any excuses to avoid family worship. Don't say, well, I just lost my temper at one of the children, I don't feel like doing it. <laughs> you need it all the more. You need to go to that child, ask for forgiveness, and you need to do family worship. Or don't say, I'm really, really tired. I'm so exhausted. I just need to sleep. Your Savior was very tired when he carried the cross, but he didn't quit carrying the cross. He went all the way. You can do a 10-minute family worship with your family, even when you're tired. And number four, lead family worship with a firm, fatherly, loving hand and a soft, penitent heart. Speak with hopeful solemnity. Talk naturally yet reverently during family worship. Expect great things from a great God. And view family worship like a little mini church service in a way in your own home. That's preparing for family worship. Now, what about some guidelines for the four things you need to do? Number one, reading of scripture. Have a plan, have a plan. If the children are very young, it's probably best to stick with stories. Book of Genesis is fantastic. So are the gospels. Uh, read the miracles and parables in particular. Once your children are seven, eight or nine, they begin to start to think abstractly. Just read the whole Bible. Uh, if you do family worship twice a day, read from the Old Testament once, New Testament once, or alternate if you only do it once, that's fine. But read the whole Bible. J.C. Ryle said, a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. <laughs> do account for special occasions. Uh, sometimes there may be a special occasion. Maybe you're going on a trip. When our family was going on a trip, when I grew up, my dad would always take us into the living room. Everyone would get down on their knees, and he'd always read Psalm 91 or Psalm 121, special psalms for travel. If you're going to have Lord's Supper that day, you might want to read Matthew 26. Feel free to break into your order for special occasions. And then involve the whole family in the reading. If you're going to read 20 verses that night, you as father would say to your family, okay, I've got a wife, I've got three kids. Everyone reads four verses tonight. We have five people in the family and you take turns reading. So everyone is involved. And if possible, it's good also to have children memorize scripture after you've read it. Maybe say one text over several times. Now, what about the biblical instruction part? Well, what you want to do is you want to encourage family dialogue. There's two ways of doing that. One is you as a father, after you read the scripture passage, you start to ask your children questions from the passage. And that's a bit of a challenge for many fathers, but it's good to try. And as you try, God can enable you to do it better. The other thing you could do is to get the Family Worship Bible Guide from Reformation Heritage Books, heritagebooks.org. We sell it at nonprofit prices, and we're eager to get this into every family. We've sold tens of thousands of them. And what this does, and many families have benefited, fitted from them and it's transformed their family worship it gives you a little portion to read that would maybe take a minute to read and maybe two per chapter two or three sometimes only one it gives you the major two or three takeaways from each chapter and they usually end with a question so you just read that out loud to your family and you read the question as well and then your wife or one of your older children maybe jumps in with an answer and then the dialogue starts. And the dialogue can go to other different directions. That's fine. The important thing 
is that you and your family are talking about that Bible chapter every day so that when you go through the whole Bible in a few years, you've actually talked about nearly every subject under the sun because the Bible talks about every subject under the sun. In my mind, this is the very most important part of family worship. Children must feel the seriousness of their father instructing them about all things that belong to this life and a better life to come. Now, when you instruct your children, be pure in doctrine and be relevant in application. Don't be afraid to share your own experiences with them when appropriate, both negative and positive. Don't be afraid to share with them how the Lord spoke to you in different ways through his word and directed you in your life. Use concrete illustrations also from church history or other believers that you know. Make your children feel that God is a living God who still visits his people today. And be affectionate in manner. If you have very young children, take one on each knee, put your arm around them, look them eyeball to eyeball with love and talk to them affectionately. Sort of like the wise man in the book of Proverbs. Come near to me, my son. I will give you wisdom. I will teach you understanding. How beautiful that is. As a father friend to your children, you do this with heartfelt love. Your goal is to, is to put in them the whole counsel of God through the whole word of God, that it may bear fruit in their eternal salvation. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of children have been converted to God through family worship exercised by their own father in church history. My own father was a praying warrior in family worship, and he often prayed with tears streaming down his face. Many times we heard him cry out to God, Lord, we can't miss any of our children in heaven one day. Save them, Lord. Let their lives be nothing but a preparation to meet Christ in righteousness and peace. I've heard that hundreds of times. And the impressions that the teaching and the prayers of a father can leave upon his children, together with a mother chipping in, are unspeakable. Unspeakable. And when all of us children were saved, and a couple of us were married, then my father began to pray, Lord, now save all the grandchildren. We can't miss any of them in heaven either. Let us be an undivided family reserved for the heavenly mansions above. He would pray again and again. So that kind of warm prayer, that kind of warm instruction over an open Bible, sincere from the bottom of the heart, loving the souls of your children, that's what you need to convey. Soul love is the soul of all love. And then finally, require attention. Like the wise man, he said, Hear, you children, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. If the phone rings, you don't answer it while you're in family worship. Family worship is far more important. People can leave a message. Your audience with God in your family is far more important than, than you're attending to the voice of a human being. Now, thirdly, what about praying? Well, keep your prayers short, probably three to five minutes. Don't go on for 10, 15 minutes, but don't go on just for one minute. You can't lay all the family needs before God in one minute. Teach your children to use the so-called Acts formula. We found that to be the best one. A stands for adoration. When you pray, begin by telling God how great, how good, how wonderful he is. Then you move to confession. You confess your sins. Then T, thanksgiving. You thank God for all kinds of things. And then S, supplications. You spread out your needs before the Lord. And let your prayers be varied. One night you're going to pray for a daughter's sickness. The next night, you're going to pray for a son's test the next day in school. You're going to pray for their souls on a regular basis. 
You're going to pray for the church. You're going to pray for missionaries. Your children learn intercessory prayer from hearing you pray, Dad. So fill your prayers with intercessions. And let your prayers be sincere, from the heart, pleading with God to help your children. And train your children to pray. There's various ways of doing this, of course. What I would do is when our children were three years old, I'd put them on my lap and I'd say, I'm going to whisper some words in your ear and you can do the daddy's prayer. You just repeat after me. And so they would repeat and I'd say a few more words and I'd lead them through the whole prayer. When they were four years old, I'd say, now you start praying yourself. And uh, when you run stock, just poke me in the stomach a little bit and then I'll help you again. And so I would do that until they were about seven. And then I would say, when they were seven years old, now you take the whole prayer. Now, the Holy Spirit alone can teach them to pray, of course, true prayer. But we are to help them to know how to pray, at least outwardly. And we always pray that the Lord will teach them inwardly. And finally, for singing, <coughs> sing doctrinally pure songs. There's no excuse for teaching your children the Reformed faith and then singing Arminian songs that defeat their purpose. And then don't forget to sing the Psalms. The Psalms are so God-centered. Calvin said they're an anatomy of all parts of the soul. They are a rich gold mine for deep, Reformed, confessional, experiential, and practical living and promoting what Calvin called pietas, genuine piety. And teach your children to sing heartily and with feeling. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not as unto men, Colossians 3 says. Now, after family worship, when you go to bed at night, I would suggest that you get down on your knees with your wife every night, and you pray together, just the two of you. And you take turns. We've been doing that for 30-some years, and its I'll tell you, it's wonderful. I love to hear my wife pray. And in that prayer, you often say to the Lord something like this, Lord, bless our feeble efforts today in family worship to the eternal gain of our children. And help us to grow in the ability to do family worship. All right. Point four, objections to family worship. I'll be very brief here. Our family doesn't have time for this. Well, you don't have time for the most important thing in your life? That's what the Puritans used to say when people gave that excuse. Are you an heir of eternity and you have no time for what is the most important thing to prepare your children for eternity? It makes no sense things that are very, very critical in your life. You make time for them, don't you? Well, make time for family worship. Another objection. There's no regular time when all of the family members can be together. Do the very best you can and encourage your children to be there. And if they absolutely can't be there, then when they do come home, try to have a few minutes at least, the family worship time, just alone with them. Uh, I didn't do that. I regret now that we're empty nesters, that I didn't do that. I wish I had. Because sometimes, you know what it's like when your kids are in college, they have a class during family worship time, or they don't come home till late at night. And so it's good even then, to have a few minutes with each child. Another objection, our family's too small. Well, the Lord says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be in the midst of you. So today, my wife and I eat most of our meals alone. And after dinner, we have family worship, just the two of us. We go through the family worship Bible guide, just as we did when our children were home. And we love it. Having two of you is enough. 
And if you're all by yourself, you see the Family Worship Bible Guide actually says thoughts for personal worship and family worship. Though you can't have family worship with only one person, you are still to have personal worship, and you can still use those same portions and go through it for yourself. And then the big objection. I'm not good at leading family worship. I'm not a minister. I'm not a theological teacher. I'm not a school teacher. Well, God can help you. You certainly won't get better by not doing it. So what you need to do is use the Family Worship Bible Guide. That will help you greatly. And then just dialogue naturally with your children after you raise the question at the end of each major takeaway. And as Matthew Henry said, it takes no uncommon ability to lead family worship in an edifying manner. God isn't looking for perfection. God isn't expecting you to act like a, like a minister with a lot of theological knowledge. Just do the best you can, prayerfully, using the Family Worship Bible Guide, and it will be very edifying for your children. God is looking more for sincerity than profundity and be sincere in family worship. Some of our family members won't participate, the last objection. Maybe you have teenagers in the home right now, and maybe you're not doing any family worship. And you're going to go home tonight, and you're trembling already. And you're saying, what am I going to say to them? My son won't sing. I know he won't sing. Well, you sit them down, you say something like this. My son, I want to tell you something. I heard a talk tonight, or this morning, rather, in Australia, uh, that's changed my life. I, I've been neglecting something, and I, I really ask for your forgiveness. I am called as a father to do family worship. We're going to start out very small. I ask for your cooperation. We're just going to read a few verses from the Bible. We're going to just talk. we got this book. We're getting in the mail about family worship, and we're going to read from it for about one minute. As a question at the end, we're going to try to talk about it for maybe a minute, and then we're going to pray. I'm going to pray with you. Very short. And then we're going to just sing. We'll start out by just singing one stanza of one psalter or one hymn. And I, uh, I ask you, son, to please, please join us in the family worship. Now, what if the son says no? Well, then you very gently say, not raising your voice, and say, son, you're under our roof, and I, 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 I'm convinced in my conscience I've done you wrong by not having family worship all these years, and it's important to begin. I want, I want to restore the years the locusts have eaten. Please join us. If he still says no, you say, son, every day your mother and I give you physical food, but we're also required to give you spiritual food. And if you refuse to take spiritual food, maybe we'll have to withhold the physical food as well. And they will join you. They will join you. All right, finally, point five, motivations for family worship. Motivations. I've got four or five of them here for you, and I'll be done. Number one, the eternal welfare of your loved ones. The eternal welfare of your loved ones. Train up a child in the way he should go. And God's general rule, not that there aren't exceptions, his general rule is when he is old, he will not depart from it. And there's no better way, no better way to train up a child than through daily family worship. So use every means, Father, to have your children snatched as brands from the burning. Pray with them, teach them, sing with them, weep over them, admonish them, plead with them. Remember that every family worship, you are ushering your children into the very presence of the Most High God. And you're calling for the benediction of the Almighty to come down upon them. Number two, be motivated by the satisfaction of a good conscience a good conscience. Matthew Henry, when he came to die, got his children around him on his deathbed 
And in my own words, I'll paraphrase what he said. He said something like this, children, I'm going to die. And I have some last words I want to say to you. I want you to know that I'm very sorry for all my shortcomings as a father. Would you please forgive me? I know that you know them. And the children all forgave him. And then he says, but children, I have something more to say to you. I don't want any of you to meet me on the wrong side of Jesus Christ. Because children, every single day, I have lifted you up to Jesus Christ in family worship. I've invited you, I've allured you, I've challenged you, I've warned you every day to flee to Jesus Christ, repent of your sins and believe in him alone for salvation. And therefore my conscience is free to say to you, don't meet me on the wrong side of Christ. Don't go on without a savior for your soul. Flee to that savior whom I've spoken to you about every day of your life. Satisfaction of a good conscience. And then number three, assistance in child rearing. Assistance in child rearing. Family worship helps promote family harmony in times of affliction, sickness, death, also helps prepare for teen years. You see, if you're speaking openly with your child about every subject under the sun, they're, so, they're not suddenly going to turn that off when they become teenagers. And you continue family worship when they're teenagers. So you continue talking about everything. It helps maintain openness in the family. I never forget when my, my oldest child, a son was about 10 years old. I figured I don't want him to hear about the facts of life from some wrong source. I want him to hear about it from me. I read a couple books, a couple chapters of a couple books on how to go about it. I was a little bit nervous doing it because I'd never done this before. But you know, when I talked to my son, it was so easy. And you know why? It was because of family worship, not because I'm a good dad. No, if it weren't for family worship, there would have been all kinds of subjects I never would have talked to my children about. But because we've talked about spiritual things, to talk about physical things, that's really quite easy. And apparently my son thought so too, because when I got done talking to him, I said, so son, if you have any questions in the future, uh, let me know, we'll be glad to talk again. And he said, yeah, no problem, dad. Thanks, thanks for talking, what's for supper? You know, it was like, okay, this was just an ordinary conversation. That never would have been an ordinary conversation. It would have been an awkward one if we didn't have family worship. Family worship is like putting money in the bank for the teen years because there's an openness in the family to speak on all kinds of subjects. And then number four, love for God in his church. If you love God and you love this church and you want to see the church built up, with strong families, God-fearing families, do family worship. If you want the church to grow weak and have church hoppers and church shoppers instead of church members, don't do family worship. And number five, the shortness of time. 20 years, 20 years goes very, very fast and your children are out of the home, and then you lose lots of opportunities to speak to them. You wanna take advantage of every opportunity you have. And you don't even know if you're going to live through those 20 years. When our children were still quite young, I was assaulted after I lectured in systematic theology in an Eastern European country. And my assaulters kept shouting they were the mafia. And I thought I was a dead man. They tied me up, they gagged me, they bound me hands and feet, 
and took everything from me. And I expected them any moment to kill me. I didn't even pray actually for my own life. I prayed for my wife, my kids, my church, seminary, Reformation Heritage books. I prayed for all the things that were very important to me. And then what happened was very interesting. As soon as I was praying and focused on Jesus, I felt an inward peace that is unspeakable. As soon as I would start thinking about my kids or my wife, I became anxious. At one point, the thought came to me, if I could just speak to my children one more time before I die, what would I say? And I started thinking about that. And all of a sudden I realized, I, not because I'm a good dad, I could have spent a lot more time with my kids. I, there's a lot, of, a lot of things I could have done. But because of family worship, I couldn't think of anything I hadn't talked to them about. And that was the tremendous comfort, tremendous comfort at that, at that moment. The time is short. Don't waste any opportunities. And finally, I want to close this talk by reading to you one paragraph. It's a fairly long paragraph from John Payton's autobiography. He was a missionary, you remember, to the New Hebrides. And uh, if you forget everything I said in this talk, except this one paragraph, I'll be happy. Because what I'm aiming for in this closing paragraph is that you grasp what I'm trying to say about a good relationship between a father and a son. You've got to have a relationship of tremendous love and respect for each other. So here it is. <coughs> Peyton is writing about when he went off to university, when he was leaving the family home. He was 18 or 19 years old, something like that. His father walked with him, he says, for six miles to say goodbye to him. And he carried his hat in his hand, he writes. His lips kept moving in prayer for me. His hat in his hand, he, met, he knew that his dad was praying for him. His tears fell fast when our eyes met each other at the appointed parting place, in looks for which all speech was vain. My father then turned to me and after a minute of silence, grasped my hand firmly and solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God bless you and keep you from evil. And unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with his head uncovered. So I know he was still praying for me, even as he was gazing after me. Waving my hat goodbye, I was around the corner in an instant, but my heart was too full, too sore to carry me further. I darted into the side of the road and wept for a while. And then rising cautiously, I climbed a dike to see if he yet stood there. At that moment, I caught him climbing the dike, looking after me, but he did not see me now. And he gazed for a while, but got down and set his face towards home and began to return. But I noticed his head was still uncovered, his heart still rising in prayer for me. I watched through blinding tears until his form faded from my gaze. And then hasting on my way, I vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve and dishonor such a father and such a mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, his tears, the prayers, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, walking away head uncovered, have often all throughout my life risen vividly before my mind and do so now while I am writing as if it all happened only an hour ago. And in my earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, his parting form would rise before me like that of a guardian angel. It's no Phariseeism, but deep gratitude 
which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from the prevailing sins of the day, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of my father's hopes and in all my Christian duties, I might faithfully follow my father's shining example. And then here it comes, here it comes. Listen to this. How much my father's prayers at this time impress me, I can never explain, nor can any stranger ever understand. When on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he would pour out his whole soul in tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for our every personal need. And all of us children would feel as if we were in the presence of the living Savior himself. And we all learn to love and to know that Savior as our divine Savior, Lord, and friend. And as we would rise from our knees, I used to look at the light on my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers about the heathen, I might be one day privileged to carry the gospel to the heathen world in some way. Dear friends, it is no coincidence that John Patton went to the cannibals and when his wife died and his child died and his belongings were burned, he climbed up into a tree to sleep at night so the cannibals could find him to kill him and eat him. And in that tree, he said it was as if the Lord spoke to him with large golden letters across the sky, capital letters, I will be with thee always, even unto the end of the world. He persevered for a lifetime of ministry to the heathen. And many, many were drawn to the Lord. Dear fathers, don't ask, shall I do family worship? Do it and then ask, Lord, bless our family worship to the eternal well-being of our children. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask thy benediction upon this talk, and we pray that these brethren in Australia may take to heart what has been spoken and that they may begin tomorrow, today, to do family worship simply, conscientiously, with their families and look to thee for divine blessing. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.